What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Mike Shelby is the founder and CEO of Ford Observer, a modern age Intel service that gives people the information they need and ability to act on it in real time for current events around the world. In this conversation, we talk about all sorts of different things, including the China-Taiwan issues, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, domestic issues around the United States, and many other topics that many of you will be thinking about, learning about, and constantly trying to war game out in your minds on a daily basis. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mike, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. After you listen to this episode, get on Twitter, let us know what you think. What did you like? What did you not like? What do you agree with? And what do you disagree with? We really enjoy the feedback and the conversation after each one of these episodes. All right, let's get in this conversation with Mike. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Mike here with me. I'm very excited about this because you operate in a world that I think most people don't understand, but uh, is incredibly important. Uh, But it's all based on your background. Uh, You were in Intel, in the military. You spent some time as a contractor. Walk us through kind of what were you doing in the military, and then we can talk about how you're now using this in the civilian world to keep people informed. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I enlisted in 2004. I was a 96 Bravo Intel analyst. And, you know, the... The military career, I, I actually, I didn't really uh, like it, I guess, but I loved to be on deployments. You know, we're, you do your job, like you wake up, you have a mission, you have stuff to do. You know, we, we always say intelligence drives the fight. And I'm, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, play this up, right? I mean, <laughs> m- most of the time I was sitting at a, a computer, but people have to make decisions. You know, commanders they and, and teams, they have to go to X place. They have to know what to expect once they get there. And somebody has to provide them with that intelligence. And so it really is a, a critical part of, of war fighting. Mm. And so, you know, I, I really did enjoy the intelligence side. You know, you get to, you know, experience things that, that not many other people do. You get to watch, you know, things on TV and say, oh, that, that's not right. You know, mm-hmm. you know, that's the U.S. spin on what actually happened, you know. And so uh, I, I tell you, I... I really just, I fell in love with the job and, um, yeah. And, and then, I, then I got into contracting after that. I did two deployments, went to uh, Afghanistan in 06, 07, Iraq, 08, 09. And then, mm-hmm. uh, as a contractor, went back to Afghanistan for 2010 and 2011. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I really in, enjoyed, I really enjoyed that as a, yeah. As a well, one of the things, uh, as you're talking that it immediately goes back to is like, you wake up every day shave your face, put on the same uniform, you know where to go, you know where to be, you don't got to yeah. make very many decisions. And like, life's pretty easy. And That's right. Yeah. People who've never experienced it, they're like, that sounds fucking crazy. Yeah. These two guys are idiots, right? Yeah. But like, there is this uh, uh, clarity that comes from being in an environment where uh, you don't really think for yourself sometimes, right? Now, yeah, out on the battlefield or whatever, um, or in, in uh, your case, a lot of times writing reports, like you're having to synthesize information. Uh, but there is something different about that experience that I think it's hard for people to understand until they go and, and, and do it. When you 
you were uh, doing the Intel work, talk a little bit about the training that you get before you actually go out and, and get deployed and things like that. Because uh, I think most people are like, oh, Intel, like, is that like, you know, Jack Bauer? Is that like uh, uh, some kind of field agent who's, you know, hanging people up and like doing all kinds of crazy stuff? Uh, what, what is the training like? And then what does that actually mean, you know, kind of day to day when you're out uh, in a deployment? Yeah. You know, big army stuff, big army Intel is is like big army anything, you know, um, you know, but there is a part of the army that, you know, it, it's not James Bond, but, you know, it gets uh, a little bit into the gray, gray zone or, you know, gray area. But yeah, the train up, you know, on the, on the big army side, it, it is, uh, you, you do your, your train up. It's like you zero your rifle, you go to the range, you get, uh, you know, you qualify with a, with an M249 or, you know, whatever you do, rollover training. You know, it's probably a, a lot like just for everyone mm-hmm. um, who's, who's getting ready to deploy. And then, but on the Intel side, there is, you know, how well do you know the area as, as soon as possible, you know, figure out where you're going, what unit you're placing, get in touch with them, start getting a lay of the land because it's very important as, especially as an analyst, you have to understand the baseline of, of where you're going so that you can determine what is off baseline. Mm -hmm. And so having a head start on where you're going, learning the local tribes, the local power players, the Taliban, Naqshbandi, whatever groups are active in the area. Mm -hmm. um, During that train up, the more you know about about those groups and what they've been doing, the better off you'll be. Because, you know, once you're once the unit you're replacing rips out, like there goes 11 or 12 months worth of knowledge and mm-hmm. it just literally disappears. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and then all of a sudden it's, it's a commander asking you, you've been there for 30 days, expecting an answer like you've been there for 12 months. Mm-hmm. One of, uh, from my experience, uh, some of the, some something that someone said to me early on was they said the first two weeks and the last two weeks those are the most dangerous ones and I was like why and they were like look man you you think that these people aren't paying attention you think these people aren't uh, actively thinking all day long how do we kill these motherfuckers right but like <laughs> right. they are sitting there all day long and that's all they're thinking about and when they see that truck drive by they're like I never seen that truck with that number on it before it's a new unit these mm-hmm. dudes don't know what they're doing yet they don't know where they are they don't know who we are like and, and it, it sure enough like the intensity of attacks in the beginning and the end seemed kind of crazy and you never really know why right some of it's the changeover stuff uh some of it's maybe you're just on your game you know kind of in the middle of deployment uh but i remember also the entire intel that we would receive uh there was a change in quality uh mm-hmm. you know right around uh when you would do kind of left seat right seat stuff and, and and it's just fascinating now in hindsight kind of a little bit older you get more context you start to understand why this stuff happens but like that happened how many times when units were changing out, you know, throughout a 20 year war in two different countries, like thousands of times. Right. And yeah, so literally right. somebody having to get up to speed on a brand new area in a matter of days, if not weeks, just happened over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, Intel is just like any other MOS. Like they're they're the guys. These guys are going to excel. Mm-hmm. These guys fairly average. These guys should probably be like, you know refueling trucks or whatever. and nothing against you know the, the fuel guys because that's all very important too you know no but, no we, we, can, we, we can give them shit yeah well yeah no no it's just like you stick it you know you stick in an, an 11 bravo in the arms room of course you know because he doesn't need to be out with with yes. everyone else so in intel says it's the exact same thing mm-hmm. you, you know you have the same same challenges as everybody else just you know uh typically no you know nobody's shooting at you so you talked about like establish a baseline and then recognize when something's off baseline. Um, I'm assuming that this is both in the military and the contracting work and then what you're doing today, uh, kind of in the civilian world and keeping people informed on various threats and, and, and kind of regions of the world. How do you tell something's off baseline? Like, like maybe just when you go and you look at a situation, how do you establish a baseline and then how do you know, oh, that's, that's an outlier. That's something that I should pay more attention to. Mm. 
Well, the first thing is you have to establish a subject matter expertise on your topic. So, you know, I, I'm knowledgeable about China and I can sit here and talk a lot about China and, and Taiwan, but um, I'm not an expert in the Chinese military. I'm not a PLA guy. And so what you often kind of see on social media, you know, especially it's, it's uh, the Dunning-Kruger, right? You, re- you read the Wikipedia page and you're, you know, here's my, here's my 26, you know, tweet thread on, uh, on the Chinese PLA, mm-hmm. you know. So the first thing in establishing a baseline is you just have to have vast amounts of knowledge and, and information about what's going on. If you can, there's a couple of ways you can do this. Number one, you can use an indicator system where, you know, we see uh, the PLA moving tanks around. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's happened every day for the past the past six months. Okay. That, that's very in baseline. And then all of a sudden, there's double the number of tanks. Or mm-hmm. in addition to tanks, now it's command and control vehicles or it's air defense or, uh, you know, something that, well, we didn't see that last week and now we're seeing it now. So, Identifying those indicators is is kind of the the first step there, and um, you know, and then beyond that, the knowledge that you accrue just reading through the news every day. You know, yeah. it's, I guess it's kind of the same thing. You say, you know, these these politicians or these Chinese officials weren't talking like this last last month. Mm-hmm. Now now they are. And what's caused that change? Yeah. Um, I know you're not an expert on China, but I think everyone who hears China now wants to know, are they going to take Taiwan? When? Why? How? How do you all just kind of wrap your heads around uh, a geopolitical situation that uh, not only is rooted in the current day uh, in, in kind of what I would consider more military warfare and strategy and things like that. There's also uh, a commercial uh, kind of threat standpoint, obviously with the uh, the chips and, and kind of uh, Taiwan, uh, uh, Taiwan being so important to kind of the global infrastructure uh, in that r- regard. But there's also a historical component to this. You know, how did Taiwan get to the point where it is today? And, and what is kind of the expectation over time? Like, how do you all break down a situation like that? Well, first, yeah, subject matter expertise. And you you look at, you never, as an analyst, you never want to say, well, China's going to do X. And they're going to do it on on X day. Being an analyst on stuff something like this is one reason why it's very difficult is because they may not have decided exactly what they're going to do yet. Mm-hmm. And so you're being asked, "Hey, what is China going to do? How are they going to do this?" And if they haven't decided, well, it's it's an impossible task. You know. Yeah. However, you know, you, you look at at what China has said in the past, and China said, "Well, we don't want to fight a war." I think that's true. I don't think they want to fight a conventional war because it's not just going to be against the United States. It's mm-hmm. going to be against Australia or Japan and other countries are, are probably going to get involved at, at that point. And really at that point, we're looking at World War III anyway. Mm-hmm. They want to avoid that unless they're maybe 100% sure that they can win. I don't think they're there. So we have uh, this thing called the gray zone and it, it exists under below the threshold of conventional war and so, you know, this is like using uh, – China's doing this a lot with their, their maritime militia. They have a bunch of fishing boats that are armed, and they act as like a quasi – you know, they call it the maritime militia, quasi-Chinese PLA Navy. But, but they're just out there trawling, you know, trying to catch fish. And so, uh, you know, Matt, our, our China analyst Max has, has talked about this quite a bit. We really think China's – China does well in the gray zone. Right? They really excel in the gray zone. Mm-hmm. So – Probably the most most likely course of action at this point. It doesn't mean it's a hundred percent, but most likely course of action is stay in the gray zone. Why risk fighting a conventional war when you can just surround Taiwan and embargo it, and you're not dropping bombs on Taiwan. You know, you're not threatening to nuke Taipei, but 
you're also being highly coercive. You're just, you have not triggered war yet. And so if there's a, a you know, some sort of embargo, blockade, wh- whatever kind of the various tactics are, uh, the idea would be that you uh, almost have implicit control. Uh, you are driving the situation, you're coercing uh, kind of what plays out, but you yet haven't stepped over the line to a point where uh, the United States or other countries may say, hey, that's an act of war and now we're going to come, you know, toe to toe with you. Uh, and so by doing that, that's kind of this gray zone you're talking about where uh, you have immense impact on the situation, but you're very careful as to where the line is. You never kind of step over. Is that like a fair way to kind of think about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's like uh, using, you know, like let's just look at maybe a domestic scenario, right? Okay, I shoot you with the paintball, right? Is that going to cause you to use your firearm against me? Uh Maybe not. That's a legal gray area. You're probably going to prison. You know, that's kind of a gray zone tactic. You know, it's where you are still taking steps to achieve your will. You're disrupting the enemy. You're deterring, you know, their their vast military might in, in terms of the United States, just the massive amount of firepower that could be over there. Uh, yeah, you're still carrying out your objectives. You're just not triggering war. You're, you're not causing the other guy to pull the trigger yet. If... China and the United States went toe-to-toe. I understand, and I I actually agree with you, that it's unlikely uh, that either country wants that. Now, whether it happens, we'll we'll see. Mm. But uh, if we got to that point, is there a clear uh, consensus, whether it's in the intel community uh, or or just kind of in private conversations, as to who would win that? Well, I think it's greatly contested. So a a lot of it depends on – one thing our, our China analyst, Max, talks about is the tyranny of distance. We do not have enough assets in there. If China goes 100% full tilt, high-intensity conventional war, invasion of Taiwan, we do not have enough assets in the region to stop them. Mm-hmm. And so this is a case where China, over the course of several days, can be uh, can start their an amphibious assault against Taiwan. So, A, uh, it's going to be very difficult for the United States to, to win that war just because it's going to take us so long to get over there. How, how long? Is this like a, a two-week like, period or is no, this like two, two three months? Like easy four to six weeks to get. Mm-hmm. You, well, okay, so we have, I mean, we have a couple of uh, uh, carrier strike groups in the region. Mm-hmm. But, and I'm not a Navy guy, but I would, you know, I'd expect easy four to six weeks to start, start putting stuff over there. You know, we've been doing a lot of uh, kind of uh, pre-positioned stock programs over there. Uh, we rebase some uh, bombers to Australia. We're striking up some deal with the Philippines. I imagine we're going to start storing uh, munitions over there. But, uh, you know, I, f- I forgot who said this, but I, I think it was the, uh, Air- some Air Force general over there uh, in Indo- Indo-Pacific Command. He said they have something like 10 days worth of munitions in, in a full-on fight against China. They have 10 days worth of munitions. So we better win it in 10 days. That's why that's why I have very sub- significant doubt that we can actually win that war, mm-hmm. short of full-scale mobilization, put everybody in theater, and throw everything you have at the Chinese. What I find um, intellectually interesting about kind of the the war gaming of this, the, the kind of hypothetical situations, um, you know, and, and people have heard me talk about this before, but like, it's not to minimize, uh, the obvious loss of life and kind of all, all the seriousness of war. Um, but this is not an exercise of, uh, where the United States has been highly successful recently. This is not, Hey, call CL team six and let's send a couple guys over and like do their thing. And they come back. We talk about them on national television. Like we win, right? Mm-hmm. This is very much, uh, if there is a, uh, a direct combat type engagement, uh, the United States is going to have to bring, 
jets, bombs, strikers, you know, I mean, just everything we got. And um, we haven't fought a war like that in a long time. Mm -hmm. And what I think ends up being interesting is it's also not on land. Right now, yes. Could we get it to land? Could, could we mm-hmm. kind of go play that game? Of course. Uh, but what we're talking about here, you're talking about, you know, uh, a maritime militia. Or we're talking about Navy. We're talking about all these different things that uh, add a degree of complexity, which it is unclear to me as a civilian who doesn't spend all day thinking about this stuff and, and, and reading it. Uh, how good are we? Right in in that uh, environment. So how how do you think about like forget what China would do? Just like the United States readiness and its ability to, uh, if it had everything in place, just fight in the sea against you know any enemy. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I think about uh, about a war over there is logistics. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to get troops over there. We got to get equipment. We got to get spare parts, food, water, ammo, all that stuff. Uh, China does not have a highly capable blue water Navy. They're trying to, I mean, they're in the process of, of developing that. So, uh, you know, the first thing is how, uh, how difficult will it be for us to have like an Iraq style logistics train, mm-hmm. but to the Indo-Pacific. Now, some of that stuff will be coming from our, our allies in the region. Uh, we got, go back to like 10 days worth of munitions. You know, how mm-hmm. how many weeks is it going to take for us to get more stuff over there? And, you know, the thing is, it's not just getting more stuff over there. We've been supplying Ukraine with so many munitions now. And I can't confirm that this is true, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure people have, have seen it around. Like, we have Army units right now and Marine units saying, hey, we're running out of HIMARS. We don't even have HIMARS to train the new guys who are just getting to, to their first station. And so, you know, I, I really do question – is this this is probably going to take like years for us to replenish all the munitions that we've already sent to Ukraine? So that's the second thing I think about. I, I, I do wonder. Um, again, it's very easy to talk about Russia Ukraine as uh, a conflict and, and a contained conflict in the sense of it. You know, two countries are going at it, um, and the United States obviously has a vested interest in, in uh, um, trying to uh, participate. There's plenty of people who think that we shouldn't be participating in any form or fashion, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, we're at least sending aid at the moment. There was a confirmation recently uh, that there are troops on the ground, what they're doing, highly controversial, debatable, the whole thing. Um, but it sounds like so far there has been no confirmation that U.S. troops are actually engaged in direct combat on the ground with you know Russian troops or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that said... It's very easy to talk about China and Taiwan and the direct conflict there in a self-contained kind of environment. But what you're really highlighting is like, no, man, this is a global game. (laughs) And, uh, you know, imagine the world where uh, Russia and Ukraine is just the warm up to China, Taiwan. And to your point, we've depleted resources. We've depleted the will of the American citizens, of our politicians, mm-hmm. of military leadership uh, to engage now in a dual front, you know, battle where uh, on the outside of either one of those, you would say, hey, this is really important. And you put them both together. It's like, shit, this gets kind of crazy. And so mm-hmm. um, do you think that this is top of mind for people right now, like the political leaders, the folks who, who uh, kind of read the intel that you guys put out on a daily basis? Or is this something that you all are sitting there looking at it more from like a military strategy standpoint? You're like, yeah, I'm sure the military leaders are thinking about it, but everyone else pretty much is, you know, not even aware or thinking that this is an important uh, kind of component to consider. Well, from the Eastern perspective, the Russian and Chinese perspective, I, I think the Russians look at Ukraine as the first step in a, a strategic war against the United States. China looks at at Taiwan probably as, you know, if if they lose, then this may be the end of the the quote-unquote Chinese century. But for the Chinese, they look at this and they say, this is a stepping stone to replacing U.S. global hegemony. 
And they're right now doing this economically and trying to do it financially. I don't think they want to do it militarily, but they're, one way or the other, they're going to take Taiwan or they're going to lose a billion people trying to do it. Mm-hmm. So from the East perspe- Eastern perspective, yeah, this is about the next century. This is which sphere is going to own, you know, kind of have global dominance. Mm-hmm. For the United States, you read the latest national security strategy and latest national defense strategy. And they're well aware. I mean, they, they outline it. They say this decade is going to be decisive. It is going to determine what happens this decade is going to determine the new rules-based international order. Mm-hmm. I think they're acutely aware of it. I I think they're way behind the curve, though. When you think about um, the military conflict, it's easy to say, hey, I, I get it. Cool. We don't line up you know, soldiers in a line in a field anymore and kind of fire. Uh, but the direct combat, I think people can wrap their heads around. You mentioned financial and economic war and, and kind of, uh, again, this uh, ability to uh, drastically uh, kind of influence the direction of things without actually stepping over that line. What do you all pay the most attention to or are most worried about in terms of the other types of uh, maybe in, a, in the most uh, uh, easy way to describe it, competition uh, mm-hmm. in the most kind of uh, uh, direct um, and abrasive way, the actual conflict that is happening, uh, you know, that isn't military, but is more economic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think competition is uh, is a diplomatic term. It, it's, I think the United States and China and the East in general, I, I think they are uh, going to be locked in, into kind of in an, an economic and financial death match. When Biden signed the CHIPS Act and we undercut Chinese chips production, I mean, that's that's escalatory. That's very significant. And we're still looking at how is China going to retaliate? I don't think, you know, she just came, Chinese President Xi Jinping came out uh, some time ago and wrote, apparently wrote a letter to some Chinese interest groups in the United States saying, we don't want a confrontation. We don't want to escalate. And that's what they say. But, uh, you know, back in Beijing, that's not at all what they're doing. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has even come out on numerous times this year and said, Asia's time in global governance has come. Like We are going to replace the United States. We're going to topple the unipolar world. We're going to cement China as a driver of, of and as a matter of fact, they have this thing called the Global Development Initiative or the Global Security Initiative. We see China establishing BRICS and the BRICS Plus, which is fairly new. You know, our, uh, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, several other countries. Actually, I think we're up to 19 countries now that have said that they plan to apply or are very interested in joining BRICS Plus. And so, Economically, or I guess I should say monetarily, China does not want to, I don't think they want to replace the U.S. dollar as the world reserve. I don't think. Why not? Because uh, their capital markets and credit markets are not large enough to do it. The, mm-hmm. no, one, uh, no one in Brazil wants to accept the yuan right now or mm-hmm. renminbi. Uh, but what they can do is, is, use, is use BRICS and BRICS Plus to undermine mm-hmm. the U.S. dollar for probably 20 to 40% of global trade. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I think the Chinese would be very happy to do that because if Brazil and uh, India are no longer using the dollar as the standard of, of trade, then, uh, I mean, that greatly diminishes U.S. power and influence abroad. And so, yeah, I think China's not in a position to do that. And uh, undermining the dollar is, is gray zone warfare. I mean, it, it is monetary and economic warfare. They're going to cause, potentially cause a, massive monetary crisis um, if, if they do start going down this road and more and more countries start saying, yeah, we're not going to use the dollar. We'll do bilateral currency trade. We'll just, if we have a, a trade 
if our trade is even, then we're basically we're just swapping each other's currencies. Mm -hmm. And uh, as long as those currencies remain stable, we don't have to use the dollar. Well, that's a lot of international demand being just disappearing. That's exactly what the Chinese want. Uh, when you talk about currencies, obviously everybody who watches this says, "Oh, Bitcoin's the solution, right?" Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and I'll kind of give some context here. One of the ideas that I've had, which I don't necessarily uh, think is uh, is right or see a clear path as to why it's wrong, but I think it's interesting. Um, I, I've always thought that uh, uh, the single best place to be is to be the owner of the global reserve currency, right? As, as we've seen for you know centuries now. Uh, but if you are not the owner of the global reserve currency, the second best place to be is to be using a currency along with everyone else that no one controls, right? And, and so kind of this idea of, okay, I want the global reserve currency. If I can't have it, then no one should have it. And then we should go use something that's decentralized or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I like Bitcoin, right? I, yeah. I got a ton of bias when it comes sure, to that. Right. That that story sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, how do you see Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, stablecoins, like all these different technologies that are kind of related uh, um, in some form or fashion, and kind of coming from one industry, playing into these geopolitical uh, games, especially like economic and monetary warfare, where okay, if we can take away U.S. dollar demand, like that helps us push forward this kind of hundred-year plan that we have. Mm -hmm. I do watch the Federal Reserve with great interest, interest where it con uh, concerns central bank digital currencies. I know they – like it's every week, their, their Fed bank presidents are coming out saying, hey, we have to have more regulation. we got to have congressional action. I think they understand that stable coins are going to uh, play a much larger role in, in the U.S. and international economies. And this is not an area where they can lose control. I mean you just – if you're the Fed, you cannot lose a monopoly – over the U.S. dollar or the use of of, tr of dollar-denominated trade, um, I you know I don't know. I know there's a lot of a lot of stable like very serious stable currencies, and the people developing those are developing our stable coins. Sorry, developing those to replace the U.S. dollar. And I'll tell you, I, I'm just not sure how the Fed is going to be able to to co-opt that. I'm not I'm I'm not an FX guy. I'm not a, mm -hmm. a big uh, monetary. Uh, uh, academic, but I, you know, I do wonder if if those stable coins are backed one to one to the dollar. Maybe that alone is good for the Fed because it it just creates additional demand. Mm -hmm. Even though China is trying to actively sap demand for the dollar in, in international trade. Yeah, it, it's um uh it's something I've paid attention to for five years now. Um, I, I can remember 2018, 2019, literally going on national television and talking about this idea of hey, uh, if the United States wants to remain uh, the leader and have the global reserve currency, uh, there are a ton of risks and a ton of reasons why I actually don't think central bank digital currencies are good. Mm -hmm. One of the pro arguments would be that it's all about accessibility. And so if you're in Venezuela and your local currency fails uh, and you say, well, shit, that's not good. So I want dollars. I can't get dollars because it's dangerous. It, it's difficult. It costs a lot you know, whatever the reason is. Um, and if I try to flee something that's physical, like gold or whatever, that, that's also dangerous. Uh, let me get on the internet. What can I use there? Mm -hmm. It's actually not in many cases, Bitcoin, right? It's volatile. They don't understand it. Mm -hmm. There's all these right. things. If they can get access to a digital dollar, to your point, it's backed one to one to the dollar. That's damn well just as good as having a dollar, right? In that yeah, scenario. Sure, right. But if there is no digital dollar that's super popular, especially one that is uh, backed by and, and uh, kind of put into the market by the Federal Reserve, but there so happens to be a Chinese currency, 
well, shit, I may become a fan of that because it provides me stability and, and the ability to, to use it in a digital environment and kind of all these things. And so I've always thought that uh, the digital currencies, especially the central bank digital currencies, uh, yeah, there's, you know, who's faster, who, you know, is cheaper to use, all that stuff. But there's just a pure accessibility play uh, and, and kind of competition because ultimately there are people around the world where their currency fails them and they're looking for an alternative. And some of them will turn to Bitcoin and, you know, decentralized or, or private currencies or whatever. Uh, some of them are going to turn to central bank digital currencies uh, and kind of whoever has got the most, you know, kind of, uh, or the furthest so far, whoever's got the most accessibility has a significant advantage in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I look at this as another avenue for gray zone warfare. Uh, You know, I, I think probably the fed right now is intentionally trying to crush all other competitor currencies, you know, like, like the yuan renminbi and, uh, been pretty damn successful at they, that. Well, they, ha- they have been. <laughs> I mean, they absolutely have been. And so, you know, if you're if you're China, you obviously do not like this. I, I am quite concerned about how China is going to retaliate. You know, China they're not doing well. I mean, they're really kind of on the ropes economically. This, you know, this thing like, oh, we're going to be happy with five percent, you know, GDP growth. Okay, you know, whatever you have to tell Financial Times, you know, to but you know they've had massive investor outflows, a lot of money leaving that country, a lot of concern about how um, about Western sanctions, how you know if China's going to get the Russia treatment over Taiwan, and so I I don't know how successful China is actually going to be when when they're making China's in a position where they have to grow the BRICS plus because a lot of these other current uh, countries are going to start turning on on Chinese commerce and the more the world bifurcates and you know Peter Zeon talks about uh, deglobalization mm-hmm. uh, that's a real threat to China and so I, I look at that and uh, just what's I think what's going to end up happening is you know we're, we're going to go right back we're already probably already are right back into the cold cold war and uh, and these spheres are probably going to be attacking each other's currencies just because they can get away with it and know that's that's not going to trigger World War three. This episode is brought to you by Bullish. They've reinvented the digital asset exchange. They give you access to DeFi features like automated market making and liquidity pools in a regulated environment. It's a whole new way to generate alpha. Bullish's total trading volumes have exceeded $25 billion just in the seven months since it launched. And their industry-leading order depth means you can trade confidently when you want at scale with better pricing and lower risk, all within a regulated market environment. Good reason to be bullish. Learn more at bullish.com slash pomp and follow at bullish on Twitter today. This episode is brought to you by Valor, which represents what's next in the digital economy. They provide simplified trusted access in crypto, decentralized finance, and Web3 investment opportunities. Institutions and investors can gain diversified, secure, compliant, and easily tradable access to a diversified set of industry-leading equity products and protocols, all through a single stock purchase on a regulated exchange. They currently are listed in the U.S. under the DEFTF stock ticker and on the Canadian NEO exchange under DEFI. For more information or to subscribe to receive company updates and financial information, visit their website at valor.com. That's V-A-L-O-U-R.com. Vladimir Putin, uh, president of Russia, has been uh, quite lucid in uh, in his commentary about uh, the U.S. economy, um, about the uh, U.S. addiction to social media and printing money. I mean, just there, there's line after line after line in many of his recent speeches where you listen to it and you say, listen, I get it. People are super pissed and rightfully so that he invaded Ukraine and, and kind of all these things that, that they're uh, quite upset about. Um, but if you can separate out the man from the comments – comments seem like something that we should be paying attention to. And it fits very similarly in, in line with, I think what you're talking about from China's perspective. Um, 
obviously, uh, I don't see a lot of people lining up to go get the ruble, right? right. Um, and, and there hadn't been nearly as much investment in that country as there had been in China and, and kind of they're coming at it from a different perspective. Um, but he talks about a multipolar world. And that's like the, the, the phrase he continuously uses over and over and over again. Is that ultimately the goal? It's not actually even to crush the United States, have the United States suffer in some you know immense way. It's like, hey, look, if we can just pull ourselves up to be equivalent to the United States, they've got kind of one you know side of the world, we got the other side, and and that alone would be victory. Is that kind of the way you look at it, or, or is that maybe uh, uh, being too innocent and naive in terms of their intentions and, and what they also might think is possible? Uh, it's probably a first step. But there are there are other steps. I really do. I think Putin wants to see the United States suffer. He looks at the fall of the collapse of the Soviet, Soviet Union as a humiliating event. And, you know, this is something he, he says in his speeches. One of the la- – you know, he gave a speech last month and he said, you know, the, the real travesty of the last century is that when the, when the Soviet Union fell, there was no counterweight. There was no counterbalance to world power. And he has to provide that balance. I think Ukraine is a first step towards that. We see Russia and China – expanding and deepening their alliance that is part of uh, of that I, I don't think i don't think china is going to be happy with just a multipolar world they're uh they're resource starved they've got a billion people they need uh, components materials uh, they really don't i mean they, there's no virtually no domestic i mean there's some oil but not a lot uh, they're a net importer of of food and, and fuel and so i don't think this is simply i don't think the united states is going to be happy with that outcome and I don't think China or Russia are going to be happy with the outcome. Mm-hmm. So I think we're probably in a position where one side wins outright over the other. It's a Pyrrhic victory, and we just both destroy each other. Um, or maybe, you know, I'd say maybe some some third party that's relatively unscathed kind of becomes the next global superpower. So, I, but to answer the question, I, I don't see China being happy with that. Definitely not Russia. Putin's invasion of Ukraine, um, how do you evaluate it? Uh, obviously, uh, it's been condemned by uh, pretty much every country in the West for the most part. Um, they uh, uh, don't buy the story of uh, the denazification of Ukraine. Um, they obviously uh, believe there's a threat for a nuclear war. Um, and I think it's pretty well covered and, and kind of documented in terms of both uh, the Western point of view of the action, the actual invasion itself, uh, uh, a little bit of a celebration in that they weren't necessarily able to overrun the country in maybe the way that uh, the West would like to think that they thought they could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you got kind of a Western force that continues to supply aid and weaponry and kind of all this stuff locked up, uh, you know, with the uh, uh, country of Russia. How do you look at it? Like, like what are the main takeaways for people? And then are there things that maybe that the West has been told or, or uh, the media has covered that might not either be true or, or maybe we shouldn't put as much weight on it as they already have. Mm-hmm. I think the West did overestimate Russian capabilities. Our, a guy I went to college with is, is still in the army and you know he's, he was telling me about how they're running all these drills to, uh, to to learn how to deal with Russian artillery on the on the battlefield. And you know at that time, this is a few years ago, Russian artillery outranged what we had. And so I do think there was, and a few other guys led me to believe that, you know, th- there was the expectation that Russia was, the bear was back, you know, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Russians have probably underperformed their expectations in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. When when Putin came out and, f- and fired a bunch of generals, um, that's a pretty sure sign that they were not doing well or they're, mm-hmm. they're not doing, uh, meeting, the, meeting his standard. And I think that's probably the biggest indicator that 
that Putin has been disappointed in, in Ukraine. So you think that the United States, we overestimated what they were capable of doing, which I guess if you miss, like that's probably the better direction to miss in. Uh, and at the same time that we're overestimating their capabilities, uh, Russian forces are underperforming Putin's expectations and, and kind of desires. And so you get kind of this, I don't want to call it a stalemate because it feels like they're, they're still uh, pretty heavy direct fighting. Um, but it does feel like it's now gone from like defend Ukraine to like, there is war and, you know, it, I, I don't know the future, but it almost feels like, hey, if you woke up 10 years from now and they were still fighting each other, Iraq, Afghanistan, right? Like kind of just, hey, they're just locked into this kind of drawn out war now uh, that doesn't seem to have an end because they don't they won't come to the table with each other. There's a lot of people who believe they shouldn't come to the table with each other. And so how, how do you kind of say, OK, where are we now and like where is this going? Well, it's going nowhere good. And, you know, you saw last month that the Democratic Progressive or Progressive Democratic Caucus come out and they they accidentally sent that letter to Biden that said, hey, go talk Whoops. to the Russians, you know, stop the war. Uh, yeah, the war has to be stopped. I think we are getting close, much closer to the nuclear threshold. And when Zelensky and the Ukrainians say, oh, we're going to go into Crimea, we're going to go and re we're going to re retake Donbass, uh, that is right into... That Russian doctrine says, hey, there's like three reason, three cases where we would use uh, nuclear weapons and a uh, a violation of, of Russian territorial integrity is one of them. And so this probably is the case where if, if the Ukrainians do pose a significant threat to Crimea, and, uh, then, yeah, I think, I mean, China would be well within their doctrine to use nuclear weapons. So I think actually this is the case where like the war really needs to be stopped. Otherwise, I we try really hard at Ford Observer not to be like alarmist and, and hair on fire, but Max and I are both very concerned that the use of a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine to stop a, a Ukrainian offensive uh, could could well, I mean, that, that could become the first of several, first of many. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of people who, um, there's some details in here that I don't think that they're quite aware of. Um, Crimea and Donbass, I think, is a, an interesting area. I'm not an expert. Uh, I don't know if you would consider yourself an expert or maybe I've educated. I've seen it on the map. Okay, all right, seen it on the map. Uh, Russia took it. And uh, from their view, my understanding is they believe that that is Russian territory that was outside of the Russian borders, and now they took it back. It's theirs, case closed, and they don't really want to talk about anything else other than that's ours. Mm -hmm. uh, Ukraine feels like, hey, you invaded Crimea and, and Donbass, and you stole that from us, and uh, you know we, we may not come back right away, but we are going to get our fucking country back, right? Mm -hmm. We are going right. to get our land back. Um, Russia invades Ukraine, uh, and the Ukrainians, part of the surprise, I think, to many people in the West, and, and frankly, even Ukrainians that I know, people in Eastern Europe, right, that I've talked to are like, damn. The Ukrainians have held their own, right? They've been able to put up a fight in a way that whether it's the Russians screwing up or the Ukrainians just, you know, outperforming expectations, uh, they have been able to hold the Russians off. But what you just described is not defensive. Now what the conversation has shifted to, and Zelensky has publicly said, I think, on multiple occasions, uh, is that the Ukrainians believe that once they basically push back the, the Russians, they then will go past what has been the quote-unquote border, and I put that in air quotes because it's debated, um, of Russia and Ukraine, and they are going to take back Crimea, uh, Crimea and Donbass. Now, there are a lot of people in this entire region that fight each other for a long time, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I don't think it's fair, uh, and, and frankly, it'd be arrogant and ignorant, I think, for Americans to sit here and say, we know exactly who's what and where they is and, and who owns what and, and the whole thing. 
And there's a lot of shit that we will never understand, frankly, because I don't speak Russian, right? <laughs> and, and so like, you just get through all, all the complexity, all, all the caveats. But your point is that if Ukraine does breach that line and say, hey, we are coming for Crimea, we are coming for Donbass, and, and we are going to take them, and the Russians believe that it is possible, that's where you think that the nuclear weapon could be used. Yes. Well, it's not a prediction, but I will just say- yeah, you, you think it's possible? Russia would be, would be well within their doctrine of, of use. Okay. Now, yeah, Crimea has been a part of Russia uh, since, I mean, since the American Revolution. And- yeah, you're absolutely right. We really do a, a, a disservice to this conflict by trying to view everything through American lenses. It's not, it is rarely the case where things are just as cut and dry as good guy and bad guy. Hey, you know what? What if they're both bad guys? I mean, let's just be honest here. You know, I, especially or, all, the, all or, the- or to that point, war happens. And in war, there's a lot of nasty shit that happens. Sure. Right? On both and, sides, yeah. And, and, and so to, uh, uh, from my view, to slap our moral frameworks onto right. this uh, is to essentially raise our hands and say we don't understand war, mm -hmm. right, to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, war is more than just the application of, of violence, especially among the people involved. I mean, there's a lot of psychology and, and information operations, you know, involved the mental, the mental space. So, yeah, I think, you know, um, Putin has talked about doing this. I mean, Don, uh, you know, Donetsk way back in the you know, mid mid 2010s, um, Donetsk and Luhansk. There are ethnic Russians in that part of the country. And I'm not going to sit here and say that their elections and referendums were free and fair. And they said, oh, yeah, hey, let's go join the Ru Russian Federation. Undoubtedly, a lot of them want want that exactly. But I think this is a case where, you know, where Putin says, look, there are ethnic Russians there. And we are going to go back and reclaim territory from the Russian Federation that, that should have never been given to Ukraine, never given away. And so, you know, th that's that's where they are. I'm a realist. And I say, is there there's not a perfect world. You you really cannot have your cake and eat it, too. The best thing that could possibly happen, I think, for the world is is for Crimea and and uh, the Donbass regions to be in the Russian Federation and in, in, in the war because otherwise Zelensky look Zelensky wants this thing to go nuclear he wants NATO to get involved Zelensky will start World War III to save Ukraine and I'm just uh, I'm not in that position to support that so it's very interesting because uh, Zelensky um, I remember reading I don't know whenever he got elected a couple years ago uh, I, I believe Trump got elected and then Zelensky got elected shortly thereafter you know a year or two whatever um I just read a headline, comedian gets elected, yeah, right. Right? right? And I was like, oh, like got a TV star, right? Then we got a comedian, like, is this gonna be a thing? And that was basically my only exposure whatsoever to, uh, to Zelensky. Um, and then when the war started, I saw him on television. I said, damn, that guy seems pretty inspirational. You could see how a country would rally around this individual, right? Mm -hmm. And a friend said to me, he goes, don't forget he's an actor. Right. And, and, yeah. and so, uh, by the way, so are many politicians in the United States, mm -hmm. whether they get paid for it or not. Right. They, they put on the face and then and they go and then they're media trained. They've got great communication skills, like all the things that you need to be a politician and be successful. Um, and then it started to get kind of crazy, in my opinion, because you had uh, the Russians doing things that you'd wake up every morning. And you'd be like, that's crazy. Right. And like, that's bad. And then you would hear language from American politicians, from Zelensky and other people around the world. Like this isn't just, you know, Russia, Ukraine and the United States. This is NATO. This is other countries, whatever. And you just started saying like, 
holy shit, does anybody actually want it to end? Right. And I think your point right. about like if Zelensky, and again, it's if, right? If Zelensky's strategy is to basically keep ratcheting this up until NATO steps in and says, we will protect you, we promise you, uh, we have your back. I mean, it seems pretty clear that Russia would then say, fucking send the nukes, right? And, and at that point, if NATO's involved, like, uh, that just doesn't seem like a good place. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm very confused in terms of like, how the war game plays out if we get to a point where Zelensky is super offensive and the Russians actually use a nuke, kind of what happens after that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the U.S. defense establishment, I think a lot of them do want to get more involved. I would bet dollars of donuts that NATO has troops in Ukraine. I mean, there are soft dudes out there, you know, whacking Russians for sure. Uh, you know, I, there's, I, there's some of them who don't even have uniforms on. I've seen, yeah. I, I see them on Instagram, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah that's right. <laughs> Those are the unsanctioned ones. Yeah, you're talking I, about the sanctioned I I ones. Say, yeah, they're in like Ukrainian <laughs> yeah, uniforms. Yeah, yeah. I, I should yeah be more clear. Uh, but so, you know, if if you're Poland, if you're the Baltics, um, you you probably don't want the war to end. You you want to see it keep going and um, Western sanctions try to bleed Russia dry. Uh, Putin came out, I think, in like September or maybe October, came out and said. Yeah, the Russian economy has – we're going to have challenges. We have to actually pivot the economy away from oil and gas. And he said we have to start developing new industries. And so, you know, I, I think Putin understands this is going to be like a long-term strategic battle. If you're if you're Poland and the Baltics, you don't want to be next. I mean, if you're – Lithuania and Estonia have ethnically Russian populations in the eastern parts of those countries. They don't want to be Donbass. Mm -hmm. I completely, completely understand that. And so from their from NATO's perspective, you say, well, if you if you if you give Russia this cookie, they're going to try to take the whole cake. And, uh, you know, which I, I think there's probably some truth to the argument. So this is a very complex issue. It's not just like, hey, um, you know, Russia bad, NATO good. Honestly. Yeah. So I, I don't even think NATO's the good guy anymore. But you yeah. don't think NATO's the good guy anymore. NATO, NATO, uh, all these NATO leaders, they're, they're all globalists. And. You know, you, you look at a lot of these European leaders, they're all, all WEF people, World Economic Forum, the superstars or the young WEFers or whatever they're called, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm, I'm an anti-globalist. I don't, I don't want to see that. And by supporting NATO, that's exactly what you're supporting now. And I, you know, just personally, I try not to interject my, my personal beliefs into this, but um, yeah, I don't think NATO's the good guy anymore. Mm -hmm. I think NATO is, is defending and advancing globalism. In when they do that, uh, I think their argument would be, and, and uh, uh, I always try to think of kind of like what's the pro and con argument, right? Their argument would be like, well, we were we were lured into it, right? We we were somebody else instigated, and we're just kind of finishing the fight. Um, do you think that has weight or, or, or kind of holds water, or do you think that uh, that, that sounds good and you know as a soundbite, but uh, may not be as as uh, obvious maybe when you actually do the analysis? NATO exists as a defender of rules-based international order. And so, you know, NATO, they can say, yeah, we're, yeah, we were, uh, I don't think they could say like we're, we're lured, lured into supporting Ukraine, but 
you didn't, you didn't, you didn't ask this question, but I would just tack on, you know, we've seen South Korea and Japan get involved in, in NATO. NATO, they've been sending officials to Japan and NATO working on military interoperability. The, this NATO summit in June, they came out and said, hey, we're going to start taking an increased focus in the Indo-Pacific theater because China is a direct threat now to NATO or, or something like that. China is a, a competitor or something like that. And this is global NATO. I, I just ask, if NATO's not going to stick to the North Atlantic, and now they're going to shift into global NATO, like, what's step three? And I don't, I, you know, I don't, um, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to get close to step three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, uh, Russia, Ukraine, uh, nuclear weapons of any degree, I think, scare the shit out of people, right? Uh, uh, some cases rightfully so, and some of it's just ignorance they don't understand. Um, uh, on kind of the first part of this, like, tactically, they just shoot one, right? Do they, uh, is it like a, hey, let's cover the whole country? Like, like how do you think, um, uh, do they actually go just after Crimea and the Donbass region? Like, like, I guess if you had to say like, okay, cool, we get to the point where they're like, yes, this is the line, you breached the line, we are going to use these weapons. What does that look like from a tactical standpoint? Well, conventional deployment, yeah, they, they could put on a rocket or, you know, or a plane drop a bomb or something like that. I think a very Russian thing to do, and by the way, the Ukrainians and Russians have been both accusing each other of getting ready to deploy a dirty bomb. And so a very Russian thing to do would be to deploy a dirty bomb and blame it on the Ukrainians. Explain what a dirty bomb is. Oh, a just a radiological device where, it, you know, it's not actually a, a nuclear weapon, but it's an ex you, it's an explosive with uh, with nuclear chemicals in there. And you just and you get all the uh, radiological elements dispersed. And it, it's not like a, a big atomic bomb, but like... It, it kills people and not, not only kills people it, that area has to be uninhabited you cannot live there anymore and i think the strategy would be deploy one and say all right yeah ukraine you want to you want to keep talking you want to keep coming into crimea telling us how you're going to come into crimea that's fine we'll, we'll set another one off so i, I would hope it's I, I hope it's zero but after that i hope it's it's one and done but this is how you know this is kind of a it's very escalatory but this is this may be how russia tries to break ukraine Mm -hmm. um, when that occurs, what do you think the response is? So like the tactical component of, sure, they could drop a bomb, a rocket, whatever. I think actually if I asked the average person on you know, the street in America, <clears throat> they'd say that's how it's going to happen, right? Like they're going to shoot a rocket over and, and we've got some defense or we're going to do something or, or whatever. I have no clue. Uh, but let's say that there is some escalatory uh, uh, kind of dirty bomb, nuclear weapon, whatever, used by Russia. What is the reaction from NATO and the U.S.? Is that, fuck it, game on. We're bringing every, you know, all hell and fury with us and, like, we're going to just take down uh, uh, Putin and Russia and, and just not even in the Donbass, Crimea region, but, like, now we're coming after the whole country? Or do you think it's more measured than that? Mm -hmm. Maybe it depends on delivery. You know, I said rocket, but they could put it on, like, a short-range ballistic missile or something like that. That's the same thing to the people on the street. <laughs> so, um, the U.S. You know, you, you have like General Petraeus come out and say, "We're we're going to wipe the Russians out out of Ukraine. We're going to hit every single Russian military facility in Ukraine if Russia does go nuclear." And I don't know if Petraeus is is the talking head for for the White House, or if he's or if, or if that's more like you know his opinion and kind mm -hmm. of bravado. Um, I, I don't know that the United, I don't know that the U.S. military, frankly, um, other than maybe an aerial campaign, uh, I just you know honestly I keep going back to the nuclear thing. If you know they wanted to 
to start this uh, this no-fly zone over Ukraine, which, by the way, I still think is potentially an option here. Uh, that may be one U.S. or potential course of action is to establish a no-fly zone and say, well, if it's violated, then you're going to have to literally fight everybody now. Mm. So it probably depends on on delivery and maybe where it is too. I mean, if it's in like some industrial facility, maybe, you know, I mean, that's bad. It's not as bad as setting one off in downtown Kiev. Yeah. So maybe it depends. I, I don't have any insight into, you know, what the, the four stars at the Pentagon are thinking, but my bet would be the, the, the worse the scenario, probably the higher, the greater the U S response would be. Yeah. One of the things that, um, fascinates me after having you know been in a war zone is uh there's the war you see and then there's the war that you don't see and the war that you don't see um uh, and i've talked about it before with, with other guests uh in, in some ways almost crazier right uh, and people would expect it to be okay there's a lot of stuff that's happening you know uh in, in the cover of dark or, or the tactics or, or whatever but this specific scenario to me seems the perfect setup because you do have some pretty immense threats. The U S is, uh, I guess I'm a technicality, not involved. Uh, but it's, I'd be shocked if we weren't very well aware of as much as possible, um, and, uh, in a position to step in if needed. And so, uh, if that is the case, my guess is that the Russians know that and the Ukrainians know that. Uh, and so does NATO. And and you get into this almost like there's a, a, a kind of in front of the curtain, behind the curtain. And what's going on behind the curtain um, feels more like chess. And what's going on in front of the curtain feels more like checkers of just like, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. hey, OK, I move here. What are you going to do? Right. And yeah. and uh, at the same time, people are behind the curtain and, you know, uh, they're, they're waiting to see what the what everyone else on the chessboard does before they go ahead and they make their decisions. Mm hmm. Yeah, this is bigger than Ukraine. I mean, for Putin, Ukraine's probably a first step. And for the United States, um, I, I think, honestly, I just, I think they want to regime change Putin. And so if, if the United States, the West is successful in defeating the Russians and Ukraine and uh, turning, turning, dispute, turning Crimea and, and Donbass back into kind of disputed territory like 2017, um, I think they'll go after Putin. What does that look like? And that's the ch I mean, that's the chess. Uh, you know, they try to do it through sanctions, going after the oligarchs and getting the oligarchs to turn on Putin. It didn't work. Um, I, I'm actually shocked as to how little it seems to have impacted a whole bunch of things. But it's like, you see the sanctions, they're pissed, right? Obviously, mm -hmm. uh, they're trying to distance themselves. I mean, you know, all, all the things you would expect from like an individual incentive mechanism. But unless you guys have some information or done some work that I'm unaware of, it doesn't seem like it really had that much of an impact uh, within the country of Russia. Maybe there was some uprising, but but mm -hmm. nothing that really seems material. I think when you're in a position where you you lose your yacht or you lose your life, things get a lot simpler mm -hmm. uh, decision wise. And so, um, yeah, I, yeah, you you do you look at the individual oligarchs who were sanctioned, and yeah, they lost a lot of money. Um, I don't. I don't see how they can think like maybe they'll ever get that back. And so um, I, I also I don't know, you know, we well, I mean, we'd have to sit down and kind of, you know, think think this through. But I, there are undoubtedly ways in which the United States and the, and the West could turn the heat up on on Putin. Um, as for how how they regime change him, I, I don't know. I I really honestly. Well, I, let me say this. I, I'm not going to answer that right now. 
and not because I have in, don't have inside information, but I tell you, I really want to give you like well thought out answers, yeah. and I clearly have not thought this through. But there are ways. Yeah, when when, um, when we think about the United States fight abroad, what, what's um, what's fascinating to me, and uh, 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 I think I said on an interview or something, I said, you know, we're sending billions of dollars to many other conflicts around the world, not just the Russia-Ukraine situation. Uh, but then you look and, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, they don't have clean water mm-hmm. or uh, Flint, Michigan, and, and some of these other things. Um, forget this exact moment in time, forget these exact conflicts. Just from an intel perspective, how does the United States think about when to help abroad versus when to help domestically? And, and I know you guys have done a lot of work on some domestic stuff as well, but like, what does that framework look like? And, is, and does it change? And I think that's like a really key piece to this is like, does it change with administrations? Does it change with uh, various threats? Or is there a pretty rigid, hey, these people are focused on domestic, these people are focused internationally? Mm-hmm. Well, there are different organizations you're, you're dealing with and different objectives. I, I don't, I don't even know the calculus on on how the U.S. government decides to help uh, domestically, but yeah, it, it is. It's a shame. It's a shame that we see so much going to Ukraine while there are veterans who are still trying to get access to the VA, and there are still homeless, you know, Americans and and kids who are not eating in this country. I'm not saying those things are necessarily the government's job. I'm just saying. It's, it's interesting where we send our money. Yeah, there's a lot of problems in the world in general, but also there's a lot of problems here uh, yeah, right. uh, domestically as well. Um, some of the, I think when I first started coming across some of your work, uh, 2020, uh, uh, you guys seem to become very popular in a lot of circles uh, because you were uh, tracking a lot of the domestic activities, um, political extremism, uh, a lot of the, uh, um, everything from uh, protests to riots to violence to threats, kind of just it seemed like you were trying to build the the board game, right? And you were trying to understand it. Uh, and, and I think what I and many other people appreciated uh, who followed you on Twitter and stuff like this is it seemed like there was, we are not on any one side. We are trying to understand what's happening here and almost have kind of taken a step to the sideline and we're watching the field, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so talk a little bit about uh, kind of through 2020 into 2021, what you guys were seeing, kind of what was that like in terms of trying to actually get that information and, and ensure accuracy, I think, to some degree in a time where there's just a lot of movement and, and, and kind of things changing on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. This, this goes back to 2016. And one of the reasons why I started Ford Observer is because there's a lot. I mean, there's just a lot of institutional money and a lot of focus on tracking far-right groups. And they really gloss over far-left groups. And I'm not talking about your, you know, run-of-the-mill Bernie bros. These, there are a lot of actual revolutionaries out there. And so, you know, even when you look at the the quote-unquote anti-fascist movement, you know, they won't be happy if, if Trump's gone, right? It'll be on to the next domino, on to the next thing people who are not fascists and not, I don't even think Trump was a fascist. And why is that? Because they're revolutionaries. They want to, they want to topple the capitalist system. And in many cases, they're, you know, also various flavors of anarchists and they want to talk, they want to live in a state free society. So wait, hang on. If you're the U S government here, how should, you know, how are you not giving more, uh, you know, more due diligence to these groups because you read their the zines and the pamphlets and the flyers and stuff they pass out and you read their blogs and see what they're posting on social media. Um, they, they're not talking about, Hey guys, let's go organize a protest. Um, I mean, they do that too. They're, I mean, they're sharing like uh, Carlos Marighella and, and all these leftist insurgent literature and, you know, the 
uh, manuals about how these communist uh, insurgents and, and revolutionaries carried out their own their own revolutions abroad. And so this is not just like a run of the mill protest group. So so when we look at that, we go to direct sources. I mean, we just we go read what they say, we watch the videos, do all those things. This episode is brought to you by FTX US. They're the safe, regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets. Trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than the top competitors. There are no fixed minimums, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. Download the FTX app today and use referral code POMP to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. The more you trade, the more you earn. Go download the FTX app today and use referral code POMP. This episode is brought to you by 8sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer, and the 8sleep pod is the ultimate sleep machine. The pod is the only sleep technology that dynamically cools and heats each side of the bed to maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. With the pod, you can start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. What is the result? Clinical data shows that 8sleep users experience up to 19% increase in recovery, 32% improvement in sleep quality, and up to 34% more deep sleep. How do I know it works? I sleep on it every single night, and it works so well that I beg the founders to let me invest in the company. Go check them out today at 8sleep.com slash pomp to start sleeping cool this summer and save $150 on the pod. Again, 8sleep.com slash pomp, and you get $150 off when you use code pomp. When I hear you say that, what I take away from it is uh, you got extremism on the right, you got extremism on the left, and maybe the common perspective or shared uh, uh, dream, the U.S. government does not look uh, the way it is, does not have the power it has, all this stuff. Sure, right. Where they drastically diverge is what happens next? Kind of what what does that world look like, uh, whether it is uh, kind of more right, you know, leaning in, in kind of all the things that uh, generally get assigned to that group versus uh, a left-leaning world that that is stateless or, or kind of less of the U.S. government. Is that fair that there is commonality of like destruction of the system, but really the divergence is uh, maybe on the tactics in which to do it, but then also on like what the system looks like uh, on the other side of that event? Mm. Yes. I mean, there are some commonalities. I would say the, the biggest divergence in especially in how the U.S. government looks at these groups is there are a lot of people in institutions, left wing institutions in the United States. And I would include the U.S. government in there as they, they look at the extreme left and they say, eh, yeah, that's not a great look, but they're useful. Mm. And I, I think, I mean, near as I can tell, that that's probably the number one reason why those far left groups don't get the same look as the far right groups. And, you know, also too, I mean, the right, the right in general is just much better armed. The U.S. government is not in a position where they can allow those groups to organize and coordinate. Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, when you say they're useful. What does that mean? I think ideologically they're useful in, you know, try in 2016, you know, trying to beat back on Trumpism, trying to, you know, beat back on, you know, it's always amazing. The, the anti-fascist groups, Antifa, they, they never go after like the hardcore skinheads and big biker gangs who will like literally kill them. You know, they, they go after, you know, the, the more milk toast right wing groups, you know, out, out in the street, but who's, I don't know who's the bigger fascist, maybe the the white what supremacist or white nationalist skinhead biker gang or the kids out in the street. So you think that it's almost like, uh, I don't know, 
biological, like human nature shit where it's like, who's the, who's the fucking alpha on the street when, you know, there's no police, there's no anything. And so like pick on what is perceived as the weaker group. And so that's where like the focus goes. I don't think it's necessarily, well, I mean, you know, you look at at those groups and they are much weaker compared to like, you know, a a white nationalist biker gang, like, you know, the one percenter clubs or whatever. Um, I, I, they, one of the things that the, these left-wing people chant is whose streets, our streets. Whose streets, our streets. Okay. Yeah, and so they, you know, these groups see themselves as, well, we cannot allow them to proselytize, to talk about their, you know, their issues and grievances. You can't allow them to hold a demonstration on the street. You have to go out and counter it. And, you know, maybe it's the case that, that it, you know, it's not those biker gangs who are out there demonstrating. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think this is really a, a case of, uh, you know, it, the the younger right wing activist groups are out there and they have to be countered because they you cannot allow them to grow. But, you know, I'd even say a lot of those groups, I mean, they're just they're like milk toast right wing. They're not what does know, that mean? fascist. M- milk toast. Yeah, you right know, they've never like, heard that before. I mean, they're, they're like conservative plus, you know, they're they, just, they a lot of they're the watered down version. Yeah, I don't even want to say they're the watered-down version. I mean, there there is a fascist movement in this country. It's so small. Most of them are, you know— hey, Tell me more about that because I, I think— and, and, you know, already I can see people are freaking out. They're like, holy shit, what are these guys talking about? Whatever, right? But but I think what's fascinating about your perspective is, you're, is you don't come at this, from what I can tell— uh, one side is good, the other side is bad, right? Someone how we're talking about Russia, Ukraine, you're like, look, this shit's messy. And there's a lot of different groups and they're all got their own fucking angles. And and frankly, some of the perception of what those groups stand for may not actually be what they stand for. If you go and you look at the source materials and, mm-hmm, right. and, and so you all spend your time trying to figure that out, right? Which I appreciate because it's uh, frankly more educated than most people here talk about it. Mm-hmm. But when you say, um, let, let's maybe just go kind of group by group. You said there is a fascist move it, movement in the country. W- what does that look like? How do you guys evaluate how big it is, how serious it is, what the threat is. Just kind of walk me through that. Mm. Well, when when the mainstream talks about fascist, what they're really talking about is those on the right who want to use government in the same way that that the left wing wants to use the government. Okay. Okay. The same way they want to weaponize government against which which is exactly what the Demo- I mean, I think so there's probably some element of both Democrats and Republicans doing this. But you look at conservatism and they say, no, that we, we don't need to use government power. It's a dangerous weapon. You know, we, it's a cudgel. We, we don't want to use it. And then you see Democrats, and I, I'm not trying to be partisan. This is just my observation. And Democrats get in there and they do weaponize it. They weaponize the IRS against the Tea Party. They weaponize DHS. They weaponize all these groups. Like how many, just as an example, how many murders do you think are attributed to white supremacists per year in the United States? Just ballpark it. Oh, man. Um say less than a thousand, maybe less than 200, mm-hmm. something like that. Like I, I'm assuming it's a small number. Yeah, sure. Yeah. According even to the most liberal sources, like 30, about 30 a year. Okay. So the, the domestic violent extremism is about diminishing 30 murder. Now, of course there's, there's other forms of Mur- murders of bad, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but just murders in general, about mm-hmm. 30 a year, you know, more people will, will die due to gang crime in Chicago in one month or in one year then you get white supremacist murders in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, this is just like misplaced priorities. And and I do wonder a lot, why is the emphasis so, why is this so great an emphasis on a movement that's so small? Okay. Do you have a theory as to what that is? Well, uh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like (laughs) yes. (laughs) Yeah. 
yeah, I, so I, I, see, I do see many Democrats publicly eschew violence, but I think they, they enjoy seeing people in, in 2016 through 2020. I think they, they enjoyed seeing Trump supporters get beaten and, and get death threats and, you know, have uh, various, you know, forms of a protest, uh, getting fired, ec- economic dislocation. Like they really wanted to punish Trump supporters. And it just so happened that you have the these left wing groups do that, and so I think it's a case of yeah, violence bad, but but don't stop. So when you point that out, that is um, what I would call uh, the the uh, pro right critical view of the left. Right is is kind of the the way to look at right. it. If we th- then turn and flip that the other way, and we say okay, what is like the uh, pro left critical of the right? view uh is you said already hey there is this fascist group it's small but but it exists are there other things that you think uh have some kind of uh, um seriousness or or accuracy to them from that uh angle of critique yeah i would even say like your your average american you know fascist has nothing on 1930s absolutely nothing but i do think the move it's small but it is growing and I think they're trying to be proactive. They I, I, being the, the, the kind left. of fascist. Yeah, or like the left, the, left the, the anti-fascist are trying yep. to be proactive. And they say, well, one is one too many. Mm-hmm. Like, because if, they're, if, if you let one go, then there's going to be two. And if there's two, then there's 10. And if there's 10, there's 1,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would just say, on the other hand, if you look at the, the common gripes, the, the, the actual complaints among these right-wing groups, it is because the, the country is changing so fast. Mm-hmm. They're very uncomfortable with the rate at which society is changing. And, you know, you look at Biden even, and, you know, he said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring two groups together. And what did he do? I mean, he turned around and just is very, very divisive. And I look at the things that the government is doing. So I'll give you an example, right? Biden could come out and, and he could say to conservatives, I understand your complaints about border security. And if Biden replaced Mallorca because he's obviously not interested in doing it. If Biden replaced him with someone who could seal up the border as well as it was from 2016 to 2020, that would go a long way in bridging the gap and turning down the temperature on a lot of anti-government extremism or protests or sentiment. Mm -hmm. But we don't see government doing that. We see Mm -hmm. government doing the the absolute opposite of that, going after Border Patrol agents who are trying to secure the border. And so I look at it as a way, it's like a self-licking ice cream cone. I mean, you just get this thing spinning and, uh, you know, government does does things to to make more people angry, more people angry. They say, okay, well, we have to, we have to organize. And then you have the other side saying, well, look, these people are organizing now. And uh, the process could be stopped, I think. Uh, but I don't think either side would be happy with where we're going to go if it doesn't stop. Are you familiar with uh, the Mike Glover situation? Have you seen this? Somewhat, yes. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm not, but I saw him post online. And um, my takeaway, which hopefully you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, was uh, he's an organization uh, very focused on veterans and, and this stuff. Uh, at some point, uh, there was uh, a very small number, I think single-digit number of people uh, who kind of lost their way, right? It sounded, it sounded like, frankly, they, they got went crazy and they started uh, uh, taking – their view of what the organization should be to the extreme. And, and again, just like classic radicalization, mm-hmm. extremism, right. like like all this stuff. Uh, and we've seen that like psychologists have studied this for centuries, right? And, and decades and, and understand that like you can have a group that is net good and, and majority of people are good and there's radicalization and like 
that isn't necessarily the entire group, but still it's a problem, right? Um, and so what I think I understood from what he was saying is like, hey, there was these people. And like, once we identified that this was it, we kicked him out. We were super cooperative and like, well, that's not what we're about. Mm-hmm. And then it feels like uh, he then said, hey, but our organization has now been uh, identified as one of these extremism groups and and kind of all this stuff. And in that scenario, again, I'm not an expert on it, but it highlighted to me the complexity of this, where you could have a group and and a leadership team that says, hey, we want to go do good things and, and, and kind of support of all these causes, which I think most Americans are like, hey, we should take care of veterans. We should like do these things. There's a radicalization within the group, which we see on both sides, right? But but there's radicalization within the group. The organization tries to do what they perceive to be the right thing. It seems like most people from the outside are like, yeah, that was the right thing was to was to kind of separate yourself from the radicalization. Uh, but then you also ask yourself, well, like, what should the government do? And and like you get into this like weird game where it's like it's very unclear what is the right answer as to how the various market participants in that scenario should act. Mm-hmm. Is that? One example of many on both sides of the aisle that you see kind of as you guys do your work in in terms of like, again, you said you can't label good and bad in, you know, geopolitical conflict. Is it possible to label good and bad in the domestic issues as well? Well, yeah, I I mean, you... And you're you're free to tell me that I'm an absolute idiot and got the whole situation wrong with with Glover. No, no, you can, I mean... Labeling good and bad is easy. It just depends on your perspective. <laughs> I just want to say, you know, let's consider the alternative that both are bad mm-hmm. in in many instances. So, Which is not a story that you hear in the mainstream media many right. times, right? Sure, good, right? Good and bad is the divisive thing that can allow you to have people pick sides and argue and all this stuff. But like both are bad, you know, that seems a little bit uh, turning the temperature down a little bit actually by saying, no, both sides are bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's really tough when, yeah, it's really tough when the, both, both sides are, who are, the sides that are capable of stopping it are both bad and don't want it to stop. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, for the Glover thing, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know exactly, but yeah, I think your, your understanding is, I think it's probably accurate. Uh, the, the problem is if you go back to the, the, the radical parts of that group who maybe misconstrued, they, they thought American contingency was something that it was not. Um, you know, it's not a vehicle for, for violent revolution or anything like that. But I would go back and really try to understand the, the, con- the concerns and what is driving the radicalism among those people. The first step in solving the problem is, is understanding it. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of journalists are lazy and they'll say, oh yeah, my buddy over at whatever, he said, oh, this group was fascist. So yeah, okay, I'm gonna call this group fascist. And you actually go back and you look at some of these groups and they're not really espouse. You may not like what they espouse, but they're legitimately not fascist groups. And so, I, you know, I would try to understand the problem. And in many cases, what the federal government is doing, like, okay, the whole Epstein uh, Maxwell thing, right? Okay, why why do we not know? I mean, why is the government not going after those people? But they will go after a PTA. The FBI will go uh, conduct surveillance on a PTA group because some parents are angry at what their children are learning in school. You know, so if we want to turn down, which sounds crazy, but like that is an actual real oh, example. Absolutely, okay. yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's just like uh, there were some anti-abortion activists, like like seven-year-old people. And this one woman, she, she sat down in front of a, a front door of an abortion clinic. And so that's a federal crime. 
And now she was arrested, and I think 11 people are actually being charged now by the federal government for obstruction of something, some law that was passed in the 90s. And I'm not saying she will get this, but she's facing 10 years in federal prison. Um, you know, how how is she facing 10 years and someone who burnt down a building in Minneapolis not? How are they going after thousands of hours of, of tape and man hours and millions, multi-millions of dollars to drag down somebody who is standing outside the Capitol on January 6, 2021, and they're not going after the same people who burnt down buildings and literally murdered people during the summer of 2020. It's the misapplication of justice. It's really selective application of justice okay. that makes people angry. So, and I see, I think on both sides, the, the belief that uh, the other side is uh, not getting enough attention and, and the whole thing. But one of the things... Uh, that you're highlighting here. So let's take um, January 6th and let's take summer of 2020. Uh, Minneapolis, I think, is the one that I personally remember watching and being like, oh, shit, shit just got ratcheted up, right? And and uh, my recollection of the events, which somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, there was uh, a protest and, and seemed relatively peaceful and, and kind of all the stuff during the day, at least the, the coverage of it was, uh, this is no different than protests that were happening all over the country in, in many cities. And then at one point, I don't know if I frankly just went and ate dinner or something and came back or, or what, but all of a sudden it was like, there's a police station on fire. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's when it was like, oh shit, this now is an, a different level. And, and who knows who did it, why they did it. Like any of this, it was unclear at the moment. It was just like, that isn't the situation. And then I think there was a, 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 in Tennessee, somebody tried to set like a courtroom on fire and, and it, it started to just kind of spread us to like, hey, this got ratcheted up. So we take these two events. The left attacks the right on January 6th and says uh, uh, insurrection and, and there's the photos and, and January 6th committee, all that kind of stuff. The right attacks the left and says, yeah, but there is a police station on fire and, and, and kind of all this stuff. When we look at these, what you're essentially arguing is like they're taking different approaches. They have different views of the world, but both sides are actually unhappy in those scenarios, and they believe the system is not working for them. They believe that right. the uh, the government is not serving what their need is, which is not the story that I hear publicly or see in the media. It's you know one side's good, one side's bad, the whole thing. But like, actually, if you kind of just everyone take a deep breath for a second and say, hey, both of these sides are saying this is not working for them. What is the release valve? What is what is the like kind of escape hatch? Or is there not one? Is it just literally just keeps getting ratcheted up and you have two sides that are just more and more div uh, divisive and then we get, you know, some sort of bad situation that, you know, is even worse than things that we've seen in the past? Or is there a release valve where, to your point, you know, is it the president, uh, wh whoever the next president is or, or the current one who, who can kind of provide uh, uh, this escape route? Is there other things that can happen? Like, what is that release valve? Because it doesn't feel like that's obvious today. Mm -hmm. This is, I mean, we are locked in a spiral right now because you have these far left groups. Uh, they have, they've been kind of, you know, mostly dormant since, uh, since you know, probably February 2021 or so. Um, we're probably in a position where if uh, if Republicans do end up taking the House and the Senate, I think a lot of those groups will probably reignite. Getting closer to 2024, that becomes, I mean, it's, it's a, a certainty they will. And so really the next two years, I think, are going to be very difficult. Um, and the right will look at that and say, oh, look, they're, they're organizing again. The communists are back at it. Like, now we have to organize. And 
the far left will say, oh, look, the far right's organizing now. Like, we have to really get on the ball. And, you know, it's that self-licking ice cream cone problem. That's that's what we're locked in. The best we can hope for, I don't think this is going to happen, but the best we can hope for is that in 2024, there is a a candidate who wins outright with, with minimal accusations of voter fraud, uh, maximum trust in the outcome that, yes, this was a free and fair election. The problem is we have not had one of those in some time. And I think this is probably the case where the longer you go without a legitimate, all-around legitimate victor, uh, the more likely it becomes that you still won't. The best case scenario is that, yeah, someone gets elected and everyone accepts it. I don't think that's going to happen. So this is interesting because when you say it hasn't happened in a, in a long time, um, my mind immediately jumped whether good or bad, uh, right or wrong. Uh Chad, <laughs> right in, in Florida, and like for yeah, those sure, that are right. too young to understand, like literally go watch documentaries or or watch the news segments or whatever. Like literally, they were arguing over like did the paper get punched or not, and like pretty fucking crazy stuff to determine who ultimately became the president of the United States, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um, and so like that is very different than uh, the accusations and kind of both sides of the uh, 2016 uh, uh, situation, but like that still was a, uh, a contentious multi-day affair that like people kind of forgot about or were too young that, that, uh, uh maybe paying attention now. Barack Obama doesn't seem like there was, uh, as much contention. Maybe you disagree. Um, but that seems like maybe, uh, one election where it was like, okay, he wins transition from my recollection. Wasn't anything that, that necessarily sticks out of, of, of issue. You get Trump who, I don't think most people said, oh, you know, the election uh, um, uh, was rigged or, or anything like that, but it was uh, definitely uh, once I was very happy, once I was not very happy. And, mm-hmm. and so kind of uh, in some way, that's almost like what politics have been for a long time, but it felt like it was ratcheted up for a whole bunch of reasons. 2020 happens. Now it's the accusations of actually rigging and, and mm-hmm. all the stuff. Right now in Brazil, right, uh, which I'm not an expert. I don't think you are either. Mm. Um, there's an election, and I've already seen people saying it's real, it's not real. Like, and, and it almost feels like okay, now there is a playbook that has been established that when an election occurs, we're going to just see these accusations over and over and over again. That scares the shit out of me. Yeah, right, because that feels like, uh, damn, the United States was above this. Right. Like, like to some degree, like this is what you see in, in developing nations and in, in areas where like there's a politician, a politician and a warlord. And like maybe the warlord yeah. just says, hey, now I'm the president. Yeah. What how do you evaluate this? Like, how do you think about it? Yeah, it's tough. So, you know, if we go back to 2016 and, and after that election, you have, I don't know, 25, 30. I don't know the exact number, but somewhere around there, maybe a third, maybe more of the country saying Trump's illegitimate, the Russians got him elected. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then 2020, you say, well, you've got the the overnight, hey, it's 3 a.m. and all of a sudden you get this massive dump of votes for Biden in, in a few in a handful of key states and it tips him over the top. And uh, now, you know, a third of the, I don't, again, I don't know the exact numbers, but let's just call it a third of the country says Biden's illegitimate. Well, you know, I look at 2024 and I say, well, we've seen some violence from the right. We've seen capability. We've seen the right organizing. We've seen violence from the left. They've been organizing. Um, is 2024 going to be the trigger that sets off increased violence? And, you know, that's one of my concerns is, you know, you get into a situation where, like, you have an Argentina Argentina scenario, like kind of a dirty civil war, where 
one side or the other gets elected and they say, oh, the left are doing this or the right are doing this, like we have to go after them. They're terrorists. They're domestic insurgents. They're all the things that, you know, that conservatives have been called, uh, Trump supporters have been called. And, you know, and then and there is some legitimate organized political violence, not just not just opportunistic violence, but like team deathmatch. You know, like, hey, we're a group. We're going to go out and conduct political violence, which is the absolute, you know, really one of the worst worst case scenarios. You're saying that uh, that is a possibility or that's happened in the United States? I think that is a possibility. So far, we've made, I think it's mainly been kind of ad hoc opportunistic violence, like mob violence, for instance. I, is it bad? I, I almost call that uh, uh, stupidity, right? Like, like mm-hmm. there's people who um, mob mentality happens, they're out, they're doing stuff, whatever. And like, opportunistically something, a situation shows itself and somebody is either too emotional, too stupid, too whatever. And like something occurs and all hell breaks loose. Right. But what you're talking about is, I I don't know, uh, uh, much more organized than that and much more intentional. Like we are going to go affect change in a way with violence. Yep. Effects based. Yep. I think that's, that's the worst case scenario that can, if if the 2024 election, the contested election accusations, is a trigger for that type of violence, and yeah, we've seen like Proud Boys and Antifa get into it, and I I would not call that organized political violence. Um, you know, this is this would be more of like, uh, you know, a, a group of people going out and saying, hey, this is it, we're we're going to kick off the civil war, and and that's this is something that if it were to get going, just very you know, decentralized, distributed groups saying, okay, well, they're doing it over there. I guess it's our turn over, over here now. Um, you know, that, that scares the shit out it, of me. It's bad. I mean, it could be very, very bad. It's not, it could be very, very bad. It could be so bad that the government may not, in fact, be able to stop it. And this, the situation you would run into is the government actually making matters worse. I'm not sure that that's something that you can just let die out, but um, it's also a very tricky. I mean, you saw in Iraq and Afghanistan mm-hmm. too. I mean, one slight misstep, you know, you're going to make some other people angry, and and you're you're going to trigger a, a, another round over here. Son, sons of Iraq. I yeah, mean, exactly. I, right. I, I, right. I um I've told the story before to people. Uh, I don't know if I ever talked about on the podcast. Um, and again, my memory over a decade ago. So uh, 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 we'll fuck things up so no one hold it against me. Um, but basically, the United States was uh, engaged in combat in Iraq. Uh, we pretty handily took the country uh, from the invasion perspective, and then we went into nation-building mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had a hard time. Uh, and it was pretty obvious fairly early, we're not built to do this. Um, and uh, the United States was susceptible to kind of the insurgent attacks. Uh, and one of the turning points, uh, or at least in, in kind of a momentum shift, was going to uh, young military men in Iraq and saying, uh, this is your fucking country, right? And like, you need to have national pride and you need to stand up because we can't do it, right? And and uh, in some way, um, it's crazy to hear United States military saying, hey, we can't do this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they essentially uh, armed, trained, and then helped to staff uh, what essentially checkpoints, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember right. we, we'd go do night route clearance and we'd drive by and, you know, like we'd give them shit because they're sleeping and stuff, right? But yeah, like right. they were out there mm-hmm. and, uh, and and they had their weapons and um, they knew they knew it better than we did, right? Talk about intel. Like right. these, you, you've been here for 18, 20, 25, 30 years. Like you understand who, who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, who should be in your town, who should not be in your town. And it changed the battlefield. Now people argue how effective was it, how long did it last, whatever. But like 
that was a form of what we're talking about, uh, where there was ultimately, yes, it was a U.S.-led effort, but there was a group of nationals in Iraq who were military age who basically got together and said, we got to put an end to some of the shit. I don't think the United States, it's very unclear to me that that would be a good situation, nor Mm -hmm. uh, it would be allowed. I mean, just like there's so much different we are not in an active combat zone right yeah, you know right. Like, like like we live in a country that i like to think is uh is safe and people can speak their mind and, and do all these things you're talking about a world that is very different than you know the world maybe that i want to live in and, and it appears that we live in at the moment without a trigger to, to head somewhere else yeah you know the kind of the ironic thing is yeah sons of iraq was a was petraeus's answer to and and other people mm-hmm. uh, their answer to al-qaeda in iraq you know, you had the whole political party forming in Anbar province, you know, before it became Sons of Iraq proper. But that didn't stop the killing. You know, they, mm-hmm. yeah, they went out and, you know, grabbed a bunch of Al-Qaeda in Iraq guys and shot them dead in the street and called us, hey, by the way, you come pick this guy up. Like, he's he gone now. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it didn't. It didn't that guy on your playing cards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah. Right. For those that don't know, go. Uh, uh, the United States literally had 52 deck uh, playing cards with na- faces of uh, Iraqis on it, which, you know, yeah. t- tells you exactly what the mission was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that was a, I mean, that was a f- roughly organic movement, at least at the very beginning, the, mm-hmm. the uh, Sahawal Iraq movement. And, uh, but yeah, you know, the, the thing was, okay, you have a bunch of these Sunni fighters and, uh, or, you know, middle-aged or, uh, military age males. Yeah. Let's, let's form up into a militia so they can, they can protect their, oh yeah. So I, yeah. So let's, let's form a bunch of these middle-aged or, uh, military age males up and put them into a militia and, and they can go protect their country. Well, it didn't stop ethnic violence. I mean, it, it didn't, it didn't. Did it, did it, in, uh, uh, inflame it? Did it make it worse or was it just kind of eh, the baseline is the baseline and, yeah. and uh, well, the players are different? Yeah. In some areas. Yeah. Because these were, these were Sunnis mm-hmm. and Maliki Shia was president. And at the same time, you know, Maliki was trying to sideline Sunni Sunnis in the Iraq army. And so, you know, this, and we see the same thing in Afghanistan. Oh, you go help this tribe. Well, guess what? This tribe has been an enemy of this other tribe for a thousand years. And now this other tribe thinks you're against them. And so they're going to start attacking you now. I don't know that there is a, a way to win, but, but you, you bring up a you know, good point. Sons of Iraq was meant to stabilize Iraq and it, it did it mostly, it did, especially in Ambar province. Uh, but, but what you, you know, one of the things you really did was enable militias to go after Shias, mm-hmm. you know, in, in some instances. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Exodus. Accessing Web3 across multiple networks just got a hell of a lot easier. Exodus is one of the most popular crypto wallets for mobile and desktop, and they just added Chrome and Brave web browsers to the lineup. The new Exodus Web3 wallet is a multi-chain browser extension that lets you safely navigate Web3 and DeFi apps on Ethereum, Solana, and Algorand from one wallet. Manage, mint, and sell NFTs on multiple networks in one wallet. You can swap Solana and ETH tokens natively right within the extension. And if you ever hit a snag, world-class customer service is available 24-7. More of your favorite chains are on the way. So run, don't walk, over to exodus.com slash pomp to download the Exodus Web3 wallet right now. Again, exodus.com slash pomp. Go check them out today. This episode is brought to you by Compass Mining, the world's largest marketplace for mining hardware and hosting. With Compass, everyone can mine Bitcoin. You can do it at home or in one of their 23 hosting facilities around the world. All you need to do to start mining your own Bitcoin is go to compassmining.io today. 
Again, if you want to get into Bitcoin mining, go check out compassmining.io today. This idea of a release valve. You mentioned uh, 2024, whichever side wins, they win emphatically, right? It it is clear to everyone, hey, that is the winner. um, And there's acceptance of that winner. When that occurs, and I'm saying when because I'm hoping that happens, um, what is kind of the second and third order effects? Do we is it possible to wind back the clock? Kind of go go back to pre um, all of the, the the pressure that's built up and all of the the just I'm going to call it nonsense because frankly I, I think there's a lot of people in the country who are just like look I don't, I don't want to live in a world like this. Um, but is it possible to return or is there now uh, kind of this idea of like you advance so far and like that's the new battleground or that's kind of the new boundary? Mm-hmm. I think the real problem is social cohesion. Okay, explain that. Well, I'm, social cohesion, I mean, people people getting along. They have shared values, shared language, shared culture, uh, shared, you know, a- outlook. And unfortunately, you know, you, you go back and you read uh, Sir John Glubb's Fate of Empires. And he talks about empires follow a specific cycle. And he says last about 250 years, you know, roughly uh, 10 generations. And it starts with the outbreak of an empire. You have a new leader or a new idea. And uh, and, it, and it catches on, like you win a, a big victory over someone, you take their land, and okay, now you're, you start your empire. And you get into the age of pioneers, and they're, you know, they're settling and, and expanding the empire. And then you have the age of commerce. Well, guess what? more commercial interests you have, the more military you need to protect it. And so you start military expansion. And then later on in the cycle, you get to the age of intellect. And the people who are living then are so far removed from the initial spark uh, that's actually birthed that empire they're so far removed, they, they don't get it. They don't share those values anymore. They don't share the same outlook. And, you know, Glub talks about all the, the, the all the factors at play. And, you know, he said the Assyrian empire lasted for about 247 years, roughly British empire, 250 years, Pax Romana lasted 270 years. So we're all, you know, according to him, we're about in a 250 year ballpark. And one of the things that happens at the end of, end of empire is you lose social cohesion, which is exactly what's happening in the United States. And at first I said, well, this is a single source information. Let me go look. And there are other researchers, someone completely, and I don't remember his name, and I probably can't even announce, uh, pronounce it if I could remember it. But he calculated up his own like 30 some odd empires, and he found this like 260, 270 years which is very darn close to Glubb's 250 years. So I actually think there's quite a bit of, of the math is right, at least. Yeah. What, what's interesting is uh, there's a number of generations there, right? And, right. and uh, um, uh, one of the things that uh, in the investment world or in the finance world, uh, there, there's um, a paraphrase of it, but uh, basically you know, the first generation makes the money. Second generation does a pretty good job of holding on to it. By the third generation, it's gone, right? Yeah. You know, and, 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 yeah. and uh, uh, this is obviously expanded in a 250, you know, year range, but like sure damn sounds pretty similar, right? Of yeah. uh, kind of the, there's people who create an a, a empire or a, a, a country. Um, there's people who kind of take care of it. And then there's people who, who fuck it up essentially. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I think we hope that doesn't happen. Uh, but let's say that, let's play this out, right? And say, okay, that, that's where we're headed. What do you do? Do you just, hey, where's the next empire going to be built? And let me go, you know, where it's prosperous and safe and, and, and kind of on the rise. And it's the equivalent of uh, somebody who's worked at a big tech company for, you know, 10 years saying, fuck it, I'm going to a startup that's the next great tech company. Mm-hmm. Uh, or 
do you stay and try to change it? Like, like what, what happens? Yeah. So Peter Turchin has a, uh, he's a, a, or was a professor and he studied the rise and fall of, of states. And uh, one of the things he says is, I, if I recall correctly, two things end, end up happening is, is a civilization or an empire is either conquered by a neighboring empire or it falls from within and, and it's brought down internally. And it is at some point replaced by something else. So, you know, you look at the British Empire. I mean, the United Kingdom, uh, Britain still exists as a country. It's just no longer an empire. And maybe this is what happens to the United States is I think I think there are probably several things that, that could happen. But, you know, maybe it's just the United States doesn't go away. It doesn't cease to exist. Like we just don't have a carrier strike group station in Japan anymore. Mm hmm. And, and, and the dollar is no longer the, the world reserve currency. And, you know, in terms of what can you do, you have to get to a state that I think is fiscally responsible mm -hmm. and a state with a leadership that is going to look out for, for its, its residents, a state that has good industry, you produce something, you make something, you export something of value. And I think that's probably the best place you can be in. Because the, the political establishment you have at, at the governor and the state legislature may well be the one that you keep that becomes your new government. I'm just saying, you know, following into logical conclusions here, uh, get, you got to get to a good state now. Yeah. If you think that's going to happen. How do you learn so much about this stuff? Like what you guys do at uh, uh, the business, you essentially look around the world and you try to come up with intel quality or what I call like military quality intel. Uh, and my, <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know. The military. I said that I knew very, I was going to get them. That's a very low bar. Yeah, that's a very low bar. <laughs> All right, explain, explain uh, my joke that many of you may have missed there. Military grade intel. Yeah. Uh, explain. Well, you know, it's just like I had a meeting with someone the other day and, and I was explaining what they do and they said, oh, you're like your military grade. I said, look, anything military grade is is made by the lowest bidder. It is not the quality you think it is. <laughs> so yeah, military grade. And plus there's the joke, you know, about yeah, whatever the joke is about in my, there's many of them. Yeah. The m military folks will get that one. Yeah. Um, but you, you guys, obviously you take a lot of the stuff that you, uh, learned the military and implemented their, uh, contractor work. Now you're doing it in the private sector. Uh, but the folks who are consuming this are, uh, everyone from who's just interested in events around the world, trying to learn and, and educate themselves to professionals who are making, uh, decisions, whether they're corporations, investment firms, whatever. How do you uh, kind of like go through the event? So maybe a, a great way to think about this is like you wake up in the morning. What do you check? Are you checking the news? Are you checking internal proprietary dashboards? Are you just jumping on Twitter like the rest of us where you're taking a shit? And you're like, you know, what are people tweeting about? <laughs> what, what, what is the kind of the first couple of things that you do in the morning yeah. from a, a, a professional kind of intel standpoint? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, we we spend a lot of money on on access to information, various databases. And so, yeah, you know, I wake up, I'm... I'm sitting at my computer, 5:30 most most mornings. Really checking what happened overnight, making sure China hasn't you know nuked Taiwan or whatever. Uh, you know, just looking at what really what happened overnight. Checking you know kind of the first thing domestically off the presses. What's ha what's domestic media reporting, and um, you know I have my feed set up in, in keywords and topics that I'm looking at. And so you know yeah, f I mean from from the get go. We just we catch up on what happened overnight, and then we kind of add it to to our, our expectations. And uh, you know, it's a lot like financial people do. Mm -hmm. You know, you wake up and you check Asian markets. Mm -hmm. 
Twitter? How important is it for uh, for the Intel world? Well, for the Intel world is, I mean, it's very important. You're, I mean, they're citizen journalists. They're apparent, you know, basically. I mean, they can if something's happening in in Japan or in Egypt. A lot of the times, yeah, you might learn about it first on Twitter, before, you know, and, and, you know, you've even seen, you know, print media and other people cite Twitter sources like, yeah. oh, we saw this on Twitter. And my, so my favorite is when it's like a pseudonymous account and they're like, fuck it. They don't know who it is. So they just <laughs> say like, you know, the cat <laughs> right? Yeah, right. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Twitter makes, you know, Twitter is, in a lot of cases is the first place where you'll find is. And, mm-hmm. and I would say even more importantly that than that Twitter's where you'll find alternative source sources of information. And even if it's, you know, and it, it's not the, the journalistic narrative or the, the state backed narrative that you're reading at, in some newspaper somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, it's someone that says, Oh yeah, I was there. This is, this is actually what happened or, or this is my perspective or here's the non state sanctioned version of what happened. We've talked a lot about geopolitics, about domestic issues, kind of, uh, um, you know, social, all these different things. Uh, it's not all you all do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there's things like fuel shortages and, and uh, other components. Talk a little bit about that part of the work and like, why is that important? And, and kind of what are the decisions people are making once they actually are able to kind of get their hands on this type of uh, reporting? So, you know, we, I mean, we exist to produce early warning. A lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of times, the information's there and just only a few people are, are, have put it together. A hedge fund has put it together and they're acting on it. They're not telling anybody because mm-hmm. they want the advantage. So we try to act as like kind of a, a hedge fund with with uh, the quality of, of information that that we can source. And then, you know, we draw logical conclusions. And really our goal is to do that before it hits the news, right? I mean, you can read it in our report. I mean, and this is it happens very frequently. You read, you read in our report that goes out every morning at 8 a.m. Central Time, and you hear about it on the news a day or two from now. And so our, our whole goal is to say, hey, this is happening or this is going to happen or this there's a, a good there's a, a good chance this will happen over the next X number of days. And then, yeah, people can act on it and they can make decisions based off of that. I mean, really, that's what any good intelligence does. I'm fascinated by the privatization of various things in the defense industry. Um, I think the probably the most famous initial one was uh, Blackwater and kind of the contractors mm-hmm. and, and all of that. Uh, you now have examples on the technology side and kind of a, a aspiration to be the next great prime in a company like Anduril um, and, and a lot of the great work that they're doing there. Um, is it possible? to privatize the Intel work? And, and uh, is there a world where uh, the private sources end up uh, maybe not being in competition with the military sources, but but uh, uh, private sources are relied on by military leaders? Absolutely. Look at Maxar Technologies and what they're doing right now in Ukraine. You know, it's a private company. Explain a little bit more about that. Business. Yeah, I mean, Maxar, I mean, they take satellite imagery. So they're imagery intelligence firm. And you know, they're providing that to the Ukrainian government. And you have the Ukrainian MOD making decisions based off of, of those satellites. So, yes, we are probably getting, I mean, just like Blackwater and the other places where military action's been outsourced, that probably is the future of intelligence. Uh, there's a lot of, in you know, in the, in the military and the government, there's a lot of uh, institutional inertia and, and bureaucracy. And some of those things will have to, some of those state-sanctioned things will probably have to continue to be carried out by military or, or civilian groups. But the use of contractors has proliferated, 
even for intelligence gathering, and that probably is the future. Um, contractors for intelligence gathering, uh, net positive, net negative. What, what have you? What's kind of your evaluation of it so far? I, you know, I would say net positive. I mean, like I, I look at. Uh, I spent my last tour to Afghanistan was eighteen months. I was doing uh, roughly a similar job that I would have done as as a sergeant as an E five. Um, but I was getting paid a lot more to do it. Mm-hmm. I also didn't have, um, I mean, there's no morning, morning for, formation. Uh, you know, I don't have, I don't have, you know, a section sergeant or NCO, you know, double, you know, double checking up on me. And so, uh, you know, I think there's less kind of less red, red tape as a contractor. That's why I really enjoyed being a contractor. It's like, wake up, go do your job and, and just do it to the best of your ability. Now, not everyone did that, mm-hmm. but, um, I think a lot of the, it's tough to say, I just, they threw so much money at, at getting contractors. And I think a lot of that money was wasted. Mm-hmm. I would say net positive because you, um, you, you get people who have experience who want to be over there doing the job, just not in the military anymore because there's just so much BS in the mm-hmm. military. Mm-hmm. It, it, um, if I remember the numbers correctly, uh, if you were, combat engineer, infantryman, et cetera, in 2008, 2009 in Iraq uh, with hazard pay and, and kind of all the different, you know, uh, uh, ancillary payments. I think you probably made, I don't know, probably somewhere 70, 80K, something like that, 65, 70, whatever, whatever the number was. It was, it was below the $87,000 threshold that yeah, uh, right. basically uh, you, you weren't taxed. Um, and uh, I remember on the way out of Iraq, we went to Kuwait for two weeks um, or 10 days, whatever it was. And uh, essentially have like a job fair, right? Uh, set up there and it was all the contracting companies. Mm-hmm. And it was like, listen, if you turn your ass right back, you know, you go home, but like basically go right back to the country, do exactly what you were just doing. Sometimes even a less dangerous job uh, will pay you $90,000 for a six month contract. If you don't go home in those six months, we'll pay you 10K. So it's 100K total. Mm-hmm. You stay for a year and don't go home, it's 200K. Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of guys who's like, well, fuck, I was just willing to do it for way less money, right? And a lot more bureaucracy. And usually I was actually put in more danger. Mm-hmm, right. Why would I not go back? And, yeah. and, and it always, so, you know, it's just like, look, what is the value, right? If you think from a business mindset, like what is the value of the person in that country uh, uh, doing something? Private sector had a lot more value assigned to it than the uh, kind of defense industry um, or the military. And so it's just it's fascinating how, uh, you can use money and and what they're willing to pay as a proxy for a lot of other things. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, I I think a lot of that's probably waste, fraud and abuse, you know, um, you know, going to big defense contractors and, you know, we, yeah, if you're getting paid 200 K, what are they getting paid? Yeah. They're making way. (laughs) So, yeah. So I, you know, I'm just saying, you know, I'm speaking from my, my position and my role, what I was doing as a contractor in Mm -hmm. Afghanistan, uh, however, um, yeah, it's it's a different time. You and I both learned a lot since we enlisted. And, um, you know, I, when I enlisted, I was super gung-ho. And I, I get over there and I start realizing, like, this is not this is not what the average, you know, flag-waving, you know, American thinks it is, uh, which is, you know, very unfortunate. But, you know, to your point, yeah, contracting, you get a lot higher tier um, you're not just taking volunteers off the street. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. if you come to work for our company, you know, a company like Blackwater, some of the other kind of top tier firms, like you, you're going to be worth your salt. We're not just going to hire anybody just cause they show up and fill out mm-hmm. an application. Um, war's fucking nasty business, man. It's right. A, it's a moneymaker. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, well, it's you, a business, but it's also yeah. just a, a nasty situation where I think, um, uh, one of the things that 
has really bothered me, frankly, is uh, uh, there's been a lot of critiques of the Navy SEAL training, right? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I've actually never said the story before, but uh, uh, on the way to Iraq, uh, we were, went to uh, Fort Polk in Louisiana yeah. uh, about the uh, absolute shittiest place in the world because it was the middle of the summer and the fucking insects and mosquitoes. I just, it was horrible, right? I hated it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember uh, we were doing these uh, training exercises in preparation. And, uh, on one of them, uh, basically they were like, all right, y'all going to go up here and you're going to pull security. Right, okay. Whatever. They go up there, pull security. Uh, it was around like a fake village that they had built or whatever. Mm-hmm. And next thing I know, I see some dudes who just look cool <laughs> yeah. come out of the woods. Right. And they're fucking doing their thing, whatever. And, and, uh, they're pretty quick. And then everyone's like, all right, let's get out of here. And we go back to where we're staying. And, you know, it's a bunch of, guys who are just like, what the fuck was that, right? So they start asking around, whatever, and it was Navy SEALs uh, who supposedly, uh, they did an exercise where they dropped off in the ocean, they swim, they got to fucking, you know, navigate their way or whatever, and that was kind of the conclusion of it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, whatever, fine. We're there, and uh, and these dudes are staying in a a barracks that is, you know, within eyesight. I'm fucking exhausted. So is every other guy I'm with. They're talking about what are they going to go eat, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we see these seals, and they're now working out. And these dudes yeah. are pulling tires and do. I mean, just the whole thing, like literally out of a movie, right? Right. And I remember sitting there staring at them, just being like, "I'm so glad those motherfuckers are on our side." Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Oh yeah. Like, and, and that was right. the only experience I had seeing the training and like all the stuff and everything. But there's not very many people who would have done that, because my understanding of what they had just done was grueling already, and mm-hmm. then they still, hey, I got to get my workout in. Mm-hmm. And it feels like there's a disconnect between the public conversation and then when you see the reality. And it's like, by the way, some of those guys just do the math. Like they didn't come home, right? They, right. they, they, they even though all the preparation still wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, to your point about social cohesion, there's also like an education and inf- information standpoint. The more people can understand about some of the stuff, they realize it's not necessarily good and bad. It's not necessarily, you know, clean cut. Hey, I want this streamed on national television or written in the New York Times because it's nasty. Yeah. Yeah. It's very unfortunate that um, I think there is. I'm going to tread lightly here because I'm, I'm not one of those dudes, you know, obviously. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, I think there is um, like when that when that seal uh, murdered one of the Green Berets and mm. uh, I forget where where it was. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I think there are things that, that happen that, you know, people call it toxic and, and, uh, you know, just from reading the news, you, you can get that. But those, you know, those guys, I think most of them are, are like top tier quality, the best dudes you could possibly want on your team. And it's very, and again, I don't have a dog in this fight, but, um, unfortunately when you see the politicization of training, like non, um, non-soft dudes making decisions for how those guys are going to go through their own pipeline and go through their own selection progress mm-hmm. process. Like, don't mess with that. Let them run that shit because they've got to deploy with those people, right? Mm-hmm. They have to choose who they want, you know, to join their mm-hmm. brotherhood. And so I think that's a, a travesty what's happening right now is people is or civilians, people who really are in no probably have no business making those types of decisions, making those types of decisions saying, well, we're going to cut this, this phase and we're going to allow this to happen over here. And it's what are you optimizing for? Right. Like, like, you know, look, I I meet a lot of founders, a lot of people who want to work at various companies. I even talked to, you know, other investors, whatever it is. 
like to ask, what are you optimizing for? And some people, what they're optimizing for today may not be what it is tomorrow or whatever. I think most of those processes, they're not perfect. They'd be the first to say that. Most of the training processes, most of the selection processes, et cetera, is they are optimizing for the best absolute war fighters we can put on the battlefield sure, so we right. can be successful, mm-hmm. right? And that's how they were designed and that's how they've been run. And again, they fuck up, they make mistakes, whatever, they go too far, what, all that stuff is true. But that is the, what they're optimizing for. It does seem to your point, there's a lot of people now who, you know, they, they have interest, whether it's intellectual interest or, or, or some other interest that they're trying to figure out how they can, you know, uh, uh, kind of meddle in this. That's not what they're optimizing for. They're optimizing for other things. And again, maybe they're right, maybe they're not, whatever, but that is a shift in in the target, right? That's a shift in what we're optimizing for. And like, we should be aware of that. We we should understand that the goal is now shifting and we should have a conversation around, is that a better goal to go after? Or actually, are we losing kind of sight of what these people are going to have to go do? And I don't have the answers, right? And I don't don't think you claim to have the answers either, but you can see it happen and and it's kind of crazy to watch in real time. Yeah, I'm afraid this is maybe one of those, you know, end of empire indicators where, you know, we're, we're no longer optimizing for lethality. You know, like the, the maddest school of should we do this with the military? Does it help us kill more people faster? If it does, yeah, let's look at it. If it doesn't, then no, let's not do that. And yeah, just, the, you know, the things you've canceled, from, canceled. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. The yeah. military killing people like that is that is right. not good. Right. Well, you know, you just the Marine, you know, the Marines have that new ad campaign out now. Right. And it's not the, the pink haired, you know, person joining the Marine Corps. It's like Marines going out and conducting operations and, and killing people, you know, and I mean, not literally in, in the ad, but that's a very that's a very important shift from what we saw just a few years ago mm-hmm. where you know it's like a softer a softer gentler yeah. marine corps the the uh the, the pendulum swings i think in yeah. both directions as we've sure, seen right, right? um and, and it does feel uh that it has swung um but i also think there, there's recruiting issues that they're having like there, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into right. it um I, i'll leave you with this i think you'll appreciate it uh um a friend of mine was saying, you know, what do you think about all the, the Russia-Ukraine stuff or whatever? And uh, uh, I just said to myself, I said, I wonder, eh, let me go Google this. And I went and I Googled something. I came back to him. I said, hey, man, uh, there's a lot of people advocating for World War III. Military's paying $50,000 signing bonus for somebody to sign up if they're so interested in it. Right. Yeah. They right. pay they pay you to sign up, right? Mm-hmm. I don't right. see a line out the door. They're paying 50 k because they can't get a lot of people to sign up. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that, you know, again, I, I just like looking at the market. And if they're having to pay these huge signing bonuses, it means that they can't get enough people to sign up. They can't get enough people to sign up. But there's a hell of a lot of people on Twitter talking about, you know, I, I think in the last four year, four or five years, I'm pretty sure that World War III has trended on Twitter at least three times. There was the Iran situation, the North Korea situation, and then the Ukraine situation. Mm-hmm. So that's just a crazy world, right? And and again, maybe that's just what's always happened and now it's just on social media or whatever, but they're paying that much and there's a lot of people talking about it. It just seems like there's a disconnect. Yeah. I, there's a very big disconnect and I'm afraid that that politicians are going to want to fight the next world war, which may be a world war. And there are like empire indicate empire ending implications if we lose. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. 
Where uh, where can we send people to find you on the internet uh, or sign up for uh, for all the great work you guys do? Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a great discussion. You can I, our website. You can find us at forwardobserver.com. And uh, we do a, a daily YouTube live stream for about 15 minutes every morning, talk about global issues. That's just the Forward Observer channel over on YouTube. And uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and a bunch of other places under Gray Zone Warlord. It's gray with an A. Gray Zone Warlord. What a great name. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We definitely will do this again. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to transition into a brand new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to thecryptoacademy.io. My team and I have been working with the top HR teams in the industry to develop an intensive three-week training program with over 50 live events. We teach you exactly what you need to know to break into the industry, including live interview prep and resume review. Our students have been hired at over 75 of the world's best Bitcoin and crypto companies. Go to thecryptoacademy.io to learn more. Again, that's thecryptoacademy.io. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with your friends, and I'll see you all for the next episode.